Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Eating Crow Podcast. Here's your host, Pete Durand. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of the Eating Crow Podcast. I'm honored to have an old friend. I don't mean he's old, but he is an old friend. Gary Miller out of the great city of Chicago. Gary, welcome. Gary, it's great to have you. Um, Thank you. We've known each other since, I want to say, 96 or 95. It's been a long time. Whenever you left Eaton to go to uh, that software company in California. Object Automation. Yep. That's uh, when I dragged my wife to California and she thought I was a crazy human being. She still does. Yeah. So Gary, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and Miller Resource Group. Uh, it's been amazing for me to see, you know, for 30 years how you've, you know, you created a bit of a niche, I think, in what you were doing and it's expanded. So give us a little background on, on how it got started. Uh, well, it's funny that, you know, the, the topic of eating crow, uh, I absolutely stumbled into this. You know, they say, you know, find something you love and you'll find your passion, whatever. Sure. I had no clue when I was coming out of college what I was going to do. Uh, in my, it took me five years because I kept dropping accounting. You know, I just couldn't, I still have nightmares about like my accounting finals coming and I forgot to drop the class, right? So um, about a, a, a month or two before graduating, I still had not any idea what I was going to do. I majored in business. Somebody said I should major in operations um, because it was the easiest business curriculum. So it seemed logical. So I did. And uh, I was tending bar at the Alley Inn in Macomb, Illinois, had six bar stools. And a guy came in and uh, he was with a student, but he was older. Okay. Uh, I, I saw a, a Lincoln Continental parked in the parking lot and uh, he uh, we're talking and, and whatnot. And, and uh, he said, you know, you got a good personality. You ought to be in sales. I said, really? He said, yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, when you come home at spring break, I want you to come see me. Uh, uh, his company was called the fiscal service corporation. We sell okay. financial services and we actually even have a computer. Wow. And um, he, uh, he said, buy everybody in the bar a drink. Well, the, the total tab for the entire bar was like $12.95. <laughs> he threw down a $100 bill and he said, keep the chain. Wow. It's 1977, right? That'll get your attention. Um, so you could imagine he got my attention. So I came home at spring break and he hired me. Now, what I l- learned later, I mean, I took the job. I didn't even know it. It was insurance. It was life insurance. Yeah. And uh, so then I, uh, I got a new suit. Um, my dad helped me uh, buy a uh, conservative automobile, Chevy Impala. I went to work on my first day and he said, you know what? Uh, the state screwed up the licensing. I can't use you. So uh, 
So I'm like, okay, here I am. Like, now what do I do? So uh, I went home and sulked, um, kind of like that old uh, Cheech and Chong episode. Then I went home to look for a job, you know? <laughs> uh, so my then girlfriend, now wife, she said, uh, you know, my sister sold a copier to this place in Oakbrook called Sales Consultants, and they help salespeople get jobs. Uh, and since you're a, you know, your, your path is sales, since that guy told you in the bar, you should be in sales. Why don't you go there to try to get an interview? So I did. And uh, they sure enough, they sent me on an interview to uh, it was a Hallmark greeting cards. Oh, no kidding. I was going to be able to go around to drugstores and, and sell uh, greeting cards. And it was $12,000 plus a company car. And I actually got invited back to the second interview. And for the second interview, I wore a different color tie because I only had one suit. Sure. I was uh, really planning, right? You were thinking. So anyway, so I went to the second interview and then I, the ne I didn't hear back the next day from the agency at sales consultants. So I called up and they said, uh, I asked for Skip. And I said, is Skip there? He was the, the, aide, the, the guy that sent me on the interview. And I said, well, Skip doesn't work here anymore. And the uh, Hallmark is not interested in you. Oh, and I said, uh, well, who's taking Skip's place? Because I figured getting a job had something to do with where you were in line. And I had a suit. They wore suits. I was qualified. So the owner of the company said, you know, I went in and interviewed. They passed me around. Here, sell me a stapler. Sure. There was an assistant manager. There was about eight guys in the office. It was a smoking only office. Uh, it was a blue fog in the office from the, from the cools and the Marlboros. Um, anyway, the, he said, I, you, you shouldn't hire him. He, he'd be afraid of the telephone, whatever. And uh, the owner of the company kind of liked me and he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a one week tryout. $2 an hour minimum wage draw against commission. I'll give you one week tryout. I said, here was my closing question. Well, if I don't make it, will I get the 80 bucks? And uh, he said, sure. And at the end of Friday, the first week, uh, he said, yeah, I think we're good here. Let's go. So that was uh, July 1977. And I've uh, been here ever since. Somehow, I, somehow I fell in love with it. Yep. Started earning good money, uh, like the business. Now, coincidentally, uh, and I think it was in the book uh, Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell. He talked about 1954, Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, and he didn't mention Gary Miller, but we were all born in '54. Sure. The right time to be uh, take advantage of the digital revolution if you were so fortunate and in 19, when I started working as a, a recruiter they said here we want you to specialize in electrical electronics here's the phone book electrical electronics here's a bunch of little index cards with companies on it you call these people so somebody called in and uh like I was in it like six eight months he said we have a new device for the factory floor it's called a programmable controller uh, it's going to replace relays and automate factories. Can you help us find a salesperson? I said, sure. I had a resume on my desk of a guy that sold relays. 
And I thought, well, if he sells relays, isn't he going to want to sell what's going to replace relays? I mean, he knows who to call on, whatever. So I sure. sent over. I mean, I literally sent the candidate to the interview. You couldn't send resumes then because it was the mail. So he called me back. He says, do you have anybody else? I said, no. Uh, he said, this guy's perfect. I want to hire four more like him. Oh, boy. So anyway, in 1978, that was the evolution or the introduction of the programmable controller. And I hooked up with a company then called Modicon and helped them hire over the next three years, helped them hire like 40 salespeople. So you can imagine how many people I had to talk to to find those 40, how much I learned. Uh, and it was just like a, uh, you know, an explosion of interest and information gathering. And I've been, you know, tracking and involved and I've, I've essentially grown up with that industry. But it was, it was pure luck, pure circumstance, pure stumbling and have not, if the other guy had hired me, who knows where I would have gone. So anyway, thanks for asking. That's the long intro story. Um, so that actually is one of the best intro stories I've heard in the podcast. Um, it's not very often I sit with somebody whose first job experience is 43 years, two months. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't just grow up with the automation. You, you did the automation industry. I mean, there wasn't anybody doing recruiting in the automation space before then, was there? I mean, not formally. There, there's been a couple guys around who have, have, have been there, but you know, it's just, uh, it's just amazing. It's about, you know, relationships. I mean, mm -hmm. look, you were one of the guys I, I called up Eaton and I said, who, uh, I need to find a, a, a product manager or there's, you got some guys, a product manager or who's uh, the, that, oh, the product manager is uh, Pete Duran for controls or something. I said, okay, well put me through to Pete. Pete, hi, I'm Gary. I have no idea who Pete is. Right. Um, but that was a new relationship. That yeah. seed of a relationship was planted that day. And, and, you know, sometimes seeds grow into things. Sometimes they grow into oak trees, you know? Well, you know, I, I tell you, I had had before you and I met uh, a not so good experience uh, in the recruiting industry. So when I, uh, when I left James River to go to Kimberly Clark, it was through a recruiter. And I was all of 24 years old, 25. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about the recruiting space. I didn't know, you know, what it was like. And I actually loved my job at James River, but they had made some changes that changed the upward mobility of that, of that industry. So when I got this offer, they made it sound all great. I got the job. When I went in to sign the papers to take my new job at Kimberly Clark, uh, the woman that recruited me literally got up and walked out of the office and I could tell she never wanted to see me again. I was instantly at that point a commodity. And, and I thought to myself, wow, there's a different way to handle what you just did there. Mm -hmm. So I had a couple of similar experiences, you know, with salespeople, which is how I ended up moving into sales from, from marketing and, and engineering. But when you and I talked, you, I could tell you were trying to build a relationship. Right. Whether or not I was the right guy at the right time for that job, you were trying to build a relationship, which eventually will lead to five other relationships. And I've probably sent a dozen people your way, vice versa, over the past 30 years because I trust you and I know you're going to treat them well and you're going to treat the customers well. So, uh, by the way, that paying that forward, that's how you build a company. So um, I don't consider you... Uh, a recruiter, I consider you somebody that connects people with opportunities. And, uh, and sometimes the right opportunities there instantly, sometimes it's over time. 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and I've watched your company grow. And, I, and like I said before, to build a niche business and then, and then to continue to find customers. I mean, Modicon, Dick Morley and that crew, they, they started that whole space, right? I mean, they, they, they were the pioneers. And uh, having been an engineer and, and participated in the space, uh, it is challenging to find people who can technically sell. Well, and especially in a new space, I mean, because, uh, you know, m- most people, the extent of if somebody sells machine tools, uh, they say, well, go get me somebody that's sold machine tools for five years or 10 years. Well, if you're selling programmable controllers, they couldn't say, go get me somebody that sold PLCs because nobody's ever done it. Right. So we had to find people with imagination and a sense of adventure and uh, curiosity and fascination about technology. And those things are never on a job description. No. But that's what we were really looking for. Uh, yeah. And that's, to this day, I mean, that's still kind of what I look for. I mean, I look for energy and, and sparks and, and curiosity and interest and effervescence. and, and Effervescence, that's a, that's a great word. Yeah. You know, during your intro, I, I, I've, I've never actually typed, which my, by the way, my mic's picking up during a podcast, but I, I, I type something and this is either going to be uh, an article or a blog post from you or from me, because I'm going to steal it. And the title's going to be, well, who's taking Skip's place? <laughs> that was, that was the nugget that, that there's a ton of sales lessons in that single question. Mm-hmm. Right. And I've heard it worded other ways, but you, you said it so authentically because, you know, I don't think you were really reflected on that was the question. That's what, that's what teed your whole career up by asking who's, who's taking Skip's place. So yeah. there's a, there's a whole training module on that right there. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, what's funny too is, uh, you know, entrepreneurism and, you know, start your own company and you got to follow a leader with vision and, mm-hmm. and all, you know, you got to have this great vision. And uh, I always talk about the, the comment, your strength is a weakness and vice versa. Yep. I was in the company six or seven years and the owner wasn't super healthy that, that smoking only culture, you know, kind of got to him. I think he had, he had emphysema. You know? oh. And um, so it was 83 or 84. He asked me to be the, he was out of commission for a while. He said, Gary, I want you to kind of run the show. And I had no experience managing, whatever. I said, I said, Hey everybody, let's do something good here for Don. Rallied the troops. We did pretty good. And we came back. He says, well, I'd like to make you the manager. Okay. That's cool. And then uh, several months later, he said, you know, I think I'd like to have you buy the company. And, uh, and so we negotiated over a period of time and mm-hmm. learned a ton of lessons about negotiation and whatnot, had some great mentorship sure. at the time. But the primary reason I wanted to buy the company, because it was the easiest thing for me to do to continue my career. So on Friday, I was an employee. On Monday, I was an owner. I didn't have to like look for a job. I didn't have to write a resume. Sure. I could just keep doing what I'm doing. And it was so it was kind of out of laziness and fear of the unknown yeah. was, was the driver. So I, you know, it wasn't because I had this great vision for the company. It's just 
just a sales guy, keep selling. Well, you know, it's a, it's a different type of crow when you realize, I like what I'm doing. I really don't want to change. So maybe it, uh, and for salespeople, salespeople love the challenge, right? They love the challenge of the sale. But taking the leap to buy your own company um, is a pretty big, it's a pretty big jump. Uh, it's also nice when you have somebody who wants to work with you and negotiate it the right way and potentially help you bridge the gap between, you know, as an employee and ownership. So what year, what year was that? When did you buy the company? Uh, it was January of 86. Got it. So, and I, I remember coming home, uh, that was, so it was January 31st, I think, 86. We had had our second child on the 26th. My wife was home with a newborn. <laughs> and I came home and I said, well, today's the day. She goes, what? I said, today's the day I signed the papers and we buy the company. She's like, oh yeah. <laughs> she, she was so occupied with- Heck yeah. Other, other things so um yeah and and then again I, again i could write the the number of lessons learned and uh, there was a group i used to call it uh they used to call it hot stove mm -hmm. uh but i didn't even remember that i was like three years old there was a hot iron on the kitchen table my mother said don't touch that she walked out of the kitchen and i went up there and put my hand yeah. out yeah so how many lessons have i learned and and uh yeah, it's just been a, uh, it seems like one mistake after another or one bad decision after another. Not repeated. That, well, that's a key, right? You make, you've got to be comfortable making a mistake and just not doing it twice. So yeah. um, I think your, your son works with you now as well, correct? Correct. Yeah, 10, 10 years now and he's wow. the succession plan. That's fantastic. And how many employees do you have now, Gary? Uh, 20. That's, that's a good size recruiting firm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, just, you know, talk about mistakes and whatnot. I mean, I just had a, um, somebody resign yesterday, uh, a, a young prospect that I was very, very, very high on and, and mm -hmm. a big company offered her a job that I they had been interviewing her before. She had only been with me a short time, but um, that's probably one of the things that back then, uh, if I have a, the, 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 the statistic, you know, like the MLB or NFL, they keep all the statistics. In leadership, there should be a stat for disappointments. Yep. And if you don't have a lot of disappointments, you're probably not growing or evolving or learning because it's, it's a lot. And I'm surprised at how many sleepless nights I've had over, you know, emotional issues and yep. employee decisions and, and conflicts. Um, but still the joy of seeing somebody blossom on your watch and build a career and impact companies, that joy just, it's a, it's like a tenfold uh, amplifier. You can't have the highs without the lows. Yeah. Right. Well, they kind of define each other. They do. There's Eastern philosophy there. There is. So when you think about, um, you know, whether it's your son or, uh, you know, this key employee that, that you had a lot of hopes for that leave, when you look at that and you say to yourself, how did I approach that? What could I do differently? What are some nuggets that you've learned along the way that, you know, where you said, geez, I, maybe I need to rethink that policy or process or personnel approach. Any examples or nuggets you want to share from that? To me, that's the ultimate 
that's the ultimate plate of crow is when I think I've got a plan, right? I've got a plan for my team. I got a plan for one of my kids. Uh, I got a plan for how I want to communicate with my wife, you know, and uh, my wife is the first person to say to me, honey, do not speak to me like one of your employees or teammates. And because I can catch myself, especially now that I'm working from home, I'll walk out of here into there and I might be in task meeting mode. And the way I say something to her, she's like, nah, that, that, that's not going to work. So I got to step back and rethink, you know, my approach. Any yeah. nuggets there? Well, I know my wife, when she did our vows, she says, yeah, uh, yeah, love, honor, the obey part. No, it was keep you humble and, and keep you from getting too puffy chested. Yep. But yeah, she, uh, she, she should get paid the big bucks for, for trying to keep my head screwed on straight. Um, boy, you know, it's funny. It, like, so let's say you hire somebody and they turn out to be not a great fit. Mm-hmm. They say, well, I'm not going to hire anybody like that again. And then three years later, you're in the same position. How did that happen? Sure. Um, and the thing about hiring in general, I mean, again, and we, ours is just a personal professional service business. There's no manufacturing. There's no cost of goods sold. I don't have sure. inventory problems, shipping problems. Um, we have a reggae copier. It's always jamming, but that's the only, only other like technical problem that we have. Uh, the, uh, uh, but it's, it's people, it's, it's people issues and, and people challenges and, and, you know, I've watched for 40 years, they've tried to make hiring a digital science, you know, yes, no, you know, check the box, you know, does this person have the skills, yes or no, or give it a one to five scale? Well, yep. Who's deciding and, and where do they come from and what's their history and, and what's their lenses look like? So hiring is absolutely an analog business. It's a gut check. It's a gut thing every time no matter how much data you can collect yep. um, and how great the resume looks you know you, it's just always a crapshoot you hit on a couple points that are actually in the description of this podcast which is and, and, and this is something you just described that I've learned through some hard lessons every single person approaches every single situation from a completely different perspective than the other person. Not, it may not be intentional, right? Uh, and I think if you look at where our world is today, we've lost the ability to have a conversation about a topic we don't necessarily agree on. We're, we're polarized, right. right? You're right, I'm wrong, vice versa. And we can't hear each other, we can't understand it because uh, there are good people and bad people, and I've said this before, on, on each side of an issue. So there's, there. it's so hard to define a clear right and wrong. and when in, in interviewing, you've described that we use Google Hire, right? That's our company. We have a process. We have a recruiter, full-time recruiter that internally sources candidates. We set up an interview slate. Everybody goes in and rates the candidate. I think it's strong, negative, negative, neutral, positive, strong, positive. You know, and then that, that feedback comes back to me and I get to look at the candidates and maybe ask questions or filter things through. So from an, working remotely, the automation side of that, pretty clever. I mean, I like the fact that we can communicate instantly about a candidate, get feedback, mm -hmm. but I know the three or four people interviewing that person, the questions they're asking, the perception of what's important in that role are all very, very different. Mm -hmm. So ultimately to me, it's the hiring manager's gut feel. 
And I tell them that I'll back your play. You have got to get a gut feel that culturally this person's going to fit in the organization. And you said earlier, you know, we're still primarily I'm focused in sales and marketing and account support. I want hungry, daring, you know, energetic people who have high emotional IQ, right? They can communicate to people and understand how to think on their feet. But a lot of the people interviewing them don't have those same skill sets, mm-hmm. right? So whenever our technical people's on the interview, they are going to approach it completely different. You know, sure. I, I, I couldn't stand that person. <laughs> Why? Well, for the very reasons I like them. <laughs> so it's hard to make sure people are comfortable when you do make a decision that you've heard their input and can explain to them, yeah, I understand you may not like this person's skill set for this reason, but the rest of the group liked him for this reason. And this is why we're going to go forward. Yeah. Well, when two people meet, there's always four possible outcomes. Yeah. Neither one likes the other one. One likes the other one, vice versa, or they both like each other. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some study on that. The, uh, oh God, I'll try to summarize it. It was a, uh, it was a dating service. And uh, it was like, fit, you had like, say 50 interviews, 50 50 dates in two minutes each. You were like in a big room and you sure. sat around, whatever. And they had tracked people uh, with preferences, like sports, like walks on the beach, I'm a Scorpio, whatever it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so they had these preferences and the 50 people all met the 50 people in these two minute interviews. And then you were able to, it's like a dating service, but it was an online event. And they had, or some kind of an event where they had to follow up with, who they wanted to then date, whatever. And then they tracked it and uh, they, they followed those people who did actually connect and meet and then built a relationship after that. And the ones that connected and met, their profiles were nothing like what they said they wanted. This person liked sports, this guy liked to, or this, woman like to to read or this woman was a mountain climber and this guy was a computer geek they they somehow there was some other chemistry that made them map that made them connect so thinking that you know i love those little daily motivational calendars and zen calendars and whatnot sure. you know, the one yesterday said thinking that you know is a disease that's great yeah, <laughs> so that's great. um and also to your other point about uh, the noise around debate and differences or whatnot, Thomas Jefferson said, debate the idea, not the person. Yes. And that's what seems to be the, the lost art. Boy, if we could, uh, we could just remember that nugget, it would change the conversation in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. I mean, it doesn't mean, you know, we can't hold on to our values and our beliefs. It just means we have to understand where the other person is coming from, which is really difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right, their upbringing, who they were raised by, where they were raised, who they were around, what was going on in the world at that time, that creates their lens. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you could be raised in a much, much different set of circumstances. So, um, Gary, where do you see, you know, you mentioned that people keep pushing recruiting towards digital. Now that we are truly, in a sense, in a very virtual digital world, how have you guys have adapted to handling the interview process um, with your candidates and your customers? What is that? How does, how does this come into play and how do you manage it? Well, this mm-hmm. is now part of almost every interview process. 
Yep. Um, it's funny, we were one of the, in 19, about 1993, we bought, it cost like $6,000. It was a camera sat on top of a TV. It yep. sat on top of a big black console that had a big unit and it was called Confreview, you know, the first video conferencing unit. And this was gonna change the world because you didn't have to fly to Los Angeles. You could just come to our office. The employer could go to the office in Los Angeles and they could meet by video. That was 1993, 27 years ago is when that was introduced. And up until this year, video interviewing was still like a, a, a fraction of. Absolutely. It just, and now by necessity, it's mainstream. So. And people are that, comfortable with it. That's a big part of it. People are comfortable with it. I mean, they're comfortable with the technical stuff. People were nervous about video stuff. Is it? And by the way, Kudos to, to Zoom and GoToMeeting and Microsoft Teams and Google Hangouts. The level of innovation and quality that they've done over the past six months is incredible. I think my first week, you know, the, the middle of March when we all decided to stay home and you got 30 people trying to communicate and normally we did that in a stand-up meeting. The quality and reliability of this tool and the ease of use has accelerated more in the last six months than it did in 20 years. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Without a doubt. And, and I think people have relaxed and recognized you can make a connection this way. It's different. It's two-dimensional. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I, I don't know when my sales team will get in an airplane again. Because customers like this too. Yeah. You know, we had, um, it happened to me a couple of times last year in one of my top salespeople. We showed up at a, at a hospital for a big meeting and, you know, the day we're walking in, they had a massive PR crisis. We're dealing with marketing. So guess what? Marketing's not available when there's a massive PR crisis. So airfare, hotel, breakfast, dinner, Uber, whatever, all out the window when I walk in the lobby and say, sorry, we can't meet with you. Now, if it's a Zoom call and I get a message two minutes beforehand and said, can't meet with you, I got an hour back in my day. You know, I haven't spent any yeah. money. I haven't wasted any time. Now, I personally like being in front of a customer. In, in person. That's, that's the, that's the utopian aspect of being a salesperson. You love that part of it, but this is a close second, right? I, mm -hmm. I can do four or five of these a day versus one other call and then spend my time in an airport trying to make calls. So our sales team's efficiency has gone up, but I think we have to hire differently and we have to train differently for this. Um, managing and controlling uh, a, a customer call now, if, there are, if their faces are turned on, I can read your facial expressions, Gary. I can see if you've tuned out. But a lot mm -hmm. of times, half the crowd's just on their phone. You see their name, but I can't read their faces. Right. So conference calls were hard. Video calls are easier because I can tell if I'm losing somebody. And then we use visuals only as a navigational tool, right? You have to, to your point, you got to think on your feet. You have to ask who's, who's taking Skip's place, <laughs> right? Right, right. So um, it's good to see that you guys have been able to well, you were 27 years ahead of the world. Everybody's kind of catching up to you. <laughs> uh, well, it's also been uh, been great for for onboarding and training. Yeah. Um, our, you know, you bring a new person into an office of 20 people. There's a new person, and how long does it take for them to get around to everybody's cube and have a little chat in the coffee room or whatever, and get to know the crowd, get to know the the culture, the team, the players, the personalities. 
new people introduced to weekly, you know, biweekly Zoom meetings, seeing the whole offices, see the banter, the personalities. Sure. Their onboarding and uh, adaptation to the culture, their understanding of the culture was accelerated tremendously. You're the first person I've talked to that saw that aspect of it. Most people I've talked to in the recruiting side are concerned about this, but I hadn't thought about it that way. I know that when we hire somebody and we're in a big office, you're right. I might bump into that person twice in three months, Mm -hmm. but in this environment, you're right. They're seeing everybody instantly. And it is fun watching people. We've done a couple offsite events where we're co-sponsored with a brewery um, to raise money for uh, hops for uh, uh, children's flight for hope. It helps kids who need to get care in Boston or Chicago get their family phone up there and get the kids care and pay for hotels and airfare and all those things. So we do events at this local brewery for anybody that's local that wants to show up. And it is funny seeing people for the first time in four months, you know, and then a new hire is like, Oh, only I've ever seen you on zoom. I didn't realize you were this tall. <laughs> I didn't realize you were this short either. So right. that, that can happen. Yeah. Um, and you get to see people in a, their surroundings. I yeah. There, there's something, there's not a lot to that. I mean, I see you've got, I can't tell if that's an exercise machine or some pop art behind you, but it's, it's an elliptical. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, but you know, you get a glimpse of people in their homes and I mean, how many meetings do we have where kids are crawling all over the desk and interrupting and it's just, it is, you know, we have, I think we have, uh, in our 20 employees, we have 16 or 18 children under, you know, school age or less. Wow. Uh, babysitting challenges, yeah. daycares closed, and we've just had to adapt to this. And, and I mean, it's kind of interesting and fun to be introduced to your employees' families on a regular basis. Or uh, pets have been a big one with our team. Have a oh, lot yeah, of dog. Sure. In fact, we had a board meeting yesterday, and uh, I was up to go through some some strategic planning. And I moved my feet and didn't realize my dog was under my desk. Uh-huh. And he made me know he wasn't very happy with me. <laughs> <laughs> and what's funny is, four months ago, everybody's faces would have lit up. Not one person even flinched. It was like, yeah, let's just keep let's just keep going. Yeah. So. Um, I, uh, I, I actually think my one-on-ones with my team are, um, almost more connecting this way because it's just the two of us. There's nothing else going around. There's nobody else in the building. And, you know, we're having a, we're, we've learned how to have a deeper connection and find out how they're doing. And more, more often than not, the conversation shifts, you know, from the tactical work stuff to how are you holding How are you holding up right now? Right. You know, Babysitting issues, daycare issues, family issues, health issues. Uh, you know, my parents are older. I, I'm concerned about their health. By, and so all sorts of things that, that typically maybe wouldn't share uh, those connections, I think, can be a little bit more personal in this environment. Well, I th- uh, we've had, uh, we, we still do a lot of sales training and whatnot. And, and uh, it's funny that, uh, you know, you build trust. Remember that? Remember what the Johari window is? Yes. You build trust through being vulnerable mm-hmm. first. Yeah. And our, you know, when we make a sales call, we're calling a stranger rather than say, "I'm Gary Miller. I'm a recruiter. I can help you." You know, like, "I'm Gary Miller. Uh, geez, I, I have no idea where you are in your journey right now, or how this is impacting you, and where you mm-hmm. are in your hiring scheme." Which is kind of like a, "Hey, I don't know." 
Yeah. Uh, so talk to me. <laughs> and our engagement and conversations are, are better with that vulnerable opener, the real opener, instead you know, of a pitching opener. That, that's such a key piece of what we're trying to get our sales teams to understand from a training perspective is your first two questions in any conversation with a customer will determine the rest of the meeting. And those two questions typically, well, the first one to me is always very personal. And everybody has their own shtick. I always start with where are you from? I love that question. Uh, I, had a, I had a call, first time I've ever met this, this partner of ours, very big national buying group. One of my teammates is making an introduction. And I said, where are you from? He was from Michigan. And we talked about me living in Ann Arbor and him living in Birmingham and talked about our favorite places and people we knew. We ended up knowing three or four of the same people. And, and instantly in five or six minutes, we formed a personal connection. Sure. So that trust developed because he could relate to me and I could relate to him. And I didn't jump right into how many widgets we're going to buy. Right. The next question was, how can we help you? what is it that is troubling you about what you're trying to accomplish in this particular space that we could help or do better? That's a very interesting question to ask a customer because they're going to give you one or two responses. Nothing else matters after that. Your slide deck, you could probably throw it out the window and just focus on those two or three things and how you solve that problem. And if we're not capable of thinking on our feet to have that discussion, we're not, we're not trained properly. We're not doing our job. And also we're not confident. Um, I believe 100% of what we do as a company, I really believe that what we do helps customers. So I can speak with confidence about what we can do. I can also speak with confidence about what we can't do. You know, Chad, that, that's not an area we've tapped into yet. We just don't have a solution. But guess what? We just got done with a partner meeting with a company that does a really good job at that. I'll make an introduction. So I, 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 I see and have witnessed in my own company and other companies I've worked with, man, I had a, I had a sales guy when I started when my startup Rival Health, the, the fitness startup, we finally got a meeting with British Petroleum, BP. I mean, thousands, hundreds of thousands of employees, one of the biggest customers we could ever go into. And I teed up those two questions at the beginning. The woman told me her responses, but the guy that was leading the sale for me, it was his account, his deal. And I, was, I said, this is your baby. You're going to run with this. He completely ignored everything she said for the first 10 minutes, and he had to get through the pitch deck. I mean, he almost violently got through the pitch deck. <laughs> and but man, this is before Zoom calls, right? We were on a we were on a phone call. We didn't even we couldn't even see her. And I can just imagine her eyes rolling into the back of her head. And by the end of the call, I knew we'd lost. I, I knew we had lost the customer because we didn't tailor any of our discussion to what her actual needs were. Mm -hmm. So I, I I'm you know, when you when you talk about that personal connection establishing trust. Uh, and your first connect, your first question, which is, how are you guys adapting? How are you doing? Right, that answer tells you everything you need to know. And it's it's a it's a lost art form. So you guys, do you guys do that type of sales training too, Gary? I mean, what uh, what type of sales training do you guys offer? Well, I'm I'm uh, again another uh, weakness is a strength uh, type thing is uh, well, maybe it's just, I mean I always feel like I'm not good enough and I got I got to learn more. Sure. So I digest books, you know, here, here's one of the biggest, 
I was an avid listener. I mean, I listened to uh, a couple books a month, 35 minute commute each way. Yep. And I've been digesting books, uh, leadership, philosophy, business, uh, whatever for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't commute. And so uh, I'm not digesting that kind of, I mean, I, I look forward to, I had to go to Carbondale to pick up my son last week. It's like, Oh boy, I get to listen to a book. Great. Um, so I'm like a, uh, uh, had this thirst for technique and, and, you know, the, just the art of a conversation, the words, the pace, the tone, it's, it's like, you can talk about digital transformation and video conferencing and whatever, but still it, the, the human connection is, mm-hmm. is the most important part to me. And how do you say the right words and even train our new people to, to, to learn how to pause bingo and listen and not only listen but hear mm-hmm. there's so much you could you could go to phd level classes on those subtleties of, of human interaction and that's where i like spending time and so we so i digest stuff on a regular basis i find good stuff and we introduce it to the team we study we read books together mm-hmm. uh we do negotiation training uh um just we have meet, meetings every week and that's been going on for this is our 50th year now wow uh, but we've never not had at least one trail sales training meeting a week um and plus we practice conversations interesting you know when a client says hey what's this going to cost me or what sets you apart from other we bring people in on a regular basis and we practice that i mean the olympic athletes They'll practice for four years for 30 seconds on a yes. uh, balance bar, right? Yes. Our Olympic moments are when we talk to a, a stranger, a new prospect, a new candidate. And so how much training and time do we spend on the subtleties of that interaction? You know, Gary, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a complex at this point in the call because I'm not doing that enough with our team. And uh, I when I asked the question and you, and you started to go in about the information you digest, you went to a place I didn't expect, but I was glad to see. And, and I'll share a quick story about why that is. I worked for a company. Um, I will not mention the name of the organization, but the leader of this organization probably read a book a week. We changed our corporate strategy every week. Literally, we train our corporate strategy every week because of the book that person read Mm -hmm. to the point where we didn't know which way was up. So um, the way you described how you digest information is very different. And I think it's something that our listeners can benefit from. I know I will, which is as you gather the information, you share it with your team, you digest it, and then you contemplate it. Right. And then you put it into very specific, you're not changing your corporate strategy. You're changing the way and improving the way you do the things you do, your Olympic moments, right? You said your Olympic moment is when you have that conversation with a potential client about either price or value or differentiator. And as you described that, you were pausing, waiting for me to acknowledge it. That's an art form. People are sometimes uncomfortable with the pause. Um, I've worked with some executives in very senior roles who will talk nonstop for 30 minutes. And at some point, people just stop listening. The art of answering a question and then even pausing with a verbal, Gary, did that make sense? 
what are your thoughts? Sometimes people won't volunteer it. So sometimes you have to pull it out of them. But I'm going to, I've made a couple mental notes to share some of the things that I'm reading or learning with my team in a different manner because they've actually, they've asked for it, but we're so busy. I haven't formalized that process and we're doing them a disservice because they do want to learn. They do want to get better. And if I don't help them get better, I can't ask why results aren't there. Mm -hmm. So we have to help them get better. That's fantastic. Uh, Where do you see, you know, the Miller resource group in 15 years, you said your son's the succession plan. Uh, Does he have a different vision? Uh, No. And that's, that's the, the fantastic thing is that Good. it's shared and he's actually helped, you know, helped enhance and solidify mine. Um, and it's, it's also a wonderful thing. So we're, you know, we're the executive committee, if you will, president, vice president, whatever, and the level of trust and the, our ability to have conversations that are not political. I don't mean politics, politics, but yep. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not trying to impress me. Right. We can get promoted. You know, there's nothing like that. And I'm wondering what it's like to be in a world, you're in a boardroom or a meeting room with six other executives. Some of them are peers, the president's there, the CEO is there and everybody's saying things. Do they have to be guarded? Is everything an audition for your future? I mean, I don't know how hard is it to develop that trust in an executive team? And I wouldn't know, but I would imagine it's difficult. It is challenging, certainly in some of the organizations I've worked at. I could tell you that everything someone said in that room was calculated to either put themselves above or on par with someone around them. Sure. Without a doubt. So, so anyway, we, uh, so we read a lot of books together. And uh, what are you reading? Well, hey, I just read this one. You got to read it. Okay, we read it. And then we talk about it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, reading a book is reading a book. But when you have somebody else read the book and then you uh, exercise the ideas, uh, what did you get from it? It's It's you know, enhances the experience. But um, Simon Sinek's book, uh, I forget what it was, The Long Game or The Long mm-hmm. View, and mm-hmm. recent, we both read it. And, and we're really clear uh, on the fact that there are, uh, people will, people have problems. And as long as there are other people that can solve those problems, everything else in between be it digital, video, mm-hmm. audio, power decks, point, a PowerPoint, whatever. That's all stuff in between. But people have problems. There are people that have an interest in solving those problems. And I don't think that's ever going to change. And the other thing I'm, I'm so excited and, and feel so lucky about falling into this business is no matter what technology, um, no, matter, no matter what, teams of people are the solution to solving almost all problems and taking advantage of almost all opportunities. True. You know, not many people do significant, make significant changes in, in commerce or industry or by themselves. Right. Right. You know, um, so, and, and when the right team is together, the right, when the, when the chemistry is just right, I think there, there, there's no limit what can happen there's a book i remember i can't remember the book but it said uh, a business can tolerate a truly enormous number of mistakes as long as the vision is relevant and correct mm-hmm. so i we feel our vision is relevant and correct for us i think in 50 years we'll still be in the business of trying to help 
people get together for the right reasons to accomplish something great for both their benefit. What well said and, and a great way to summarize and, and kind of bookend of the show. Um, you know, as, as we're wrapping this up here, I, I'm, I'm going to have you on again because this has been fantastic, but I want to drill down on our next show and learn how and when you brought your son into the business and how that worked. Cause as you know, he has to establish his own street cred. The other people, the other 19 or 18 people in your company have to respect him, not because he's your son, but because he's good at what he does Sure. and creating that transition. So I've got a couple other friends who are going through this right now. Uh, one has his son in his business and the other one um, probably has a couple of kids that could step in and he's had them go out and do their own thing for a while before they come back in. So there's a show in that and we'll, uh, we'll get you back on the program and, and, uh, and learn how you successfully pulled that off. So or we'll bring him on. I would, I would love to get him on and have him share his thoughts as well. So I think there's a lot of people out there that get a benefit from, as you described it, having non-political discussions with their team and their, uh, their superiors in a way that just drives productivity. I mean, if you can get past all that stuff and just get to the, the root of the matter, things get done. Yeah. So, yeah. well, Gary, it has been a pleasure. I am uh, very grateful that you joined us uh, on this latest episode of the Eating Crow podcast, and I wish you the best and, and hope your golf game is continuing to prove this summer if you can find some time to get on the course. I, I appreciate it, Pete, very much. Uh, enjoyed it. I didn't know quite what to expect, but you uh, you did a great job of uh, interviewing and facilitating and, well, just two, two guys talking, right? You got uh, it. But I, I hope it was uh, helpful and beneficial. Uh, I know it did help me, so I appreciate that. Well, our pleasure. And uh, I look... Thanks for listening to another episode of Eating Crow, available on all podcast platforms. You can follow Pete on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram to join the Eating Crow community. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We'll see you soon.